He's lying on the floor of his room and he's clutching his tummy. He's in so much pain. And from the floor of his room, he looks up and he sees this Bible, which Amra had given him. And he remembers what Amra had said, when life is bitter, Jesus can be the sweet. So he gets up, he picks up that Bible and he puts it on his tummy and he peacefully falls asleep. And he said, Amrit, I don't have to go to the hospital any longer. I want you to, to move in with me, come live in my home. Don't tell anyone why you're here. It's, it's too dangerous. I want you to start teaching me all about this God. Welcome everybody, this is Simon Gilbert with Inspired. We're back this week with another fantastic guest. Basically, if you're new to us, it's all about meeting different friends of mine, connections that I've made over the years, who are doing stunning stuff around the world. And this week, I've got no doubt you're gonna be absolutely beautifully inspired because we've got with us Ed Michelson. Welcome, Ed. Hello, hello. Great to be here with you, Simon. Yeah, great to have you. So Ed and I go back, uh, we reckon about four years. We met in Cardiff and uh, I love Ed's vision. So he is a doctor, he's a qualified doctor, and he does that part-time with his main passion, having set up an organization called 500K, which we're going to come to, which involves church planting in rural India. So Ed, listen, let's get straight into it. Let's go back to um, the, sort of your backstory in general. How did you come to faith? Was it a, a, a standard ex- sort of a childhood? Just tell us about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Simon. Uh, Well, I had the enormous privilege of growing up with great Christian parents who knew the Lord, taught us to know the Lord. Mm -hmm. And a crucial thing was every night we would spend time together as a family, praying, reading the Bible. And as a result, that meant from a really young age, I can remember God the Father being just as real to me as was my earthly father. Mm -hmm. No glimmer of doubt whatsoever in his reality. And for me, the beginning of that personal relationship with Jesus, that began when I was, I think, six or seven years old. I went to a play at my brother's school. And all I really remember about this play was it being about space travel and lots about black holes. Mm -hmm. And I remember trying to get my head around the concept of a black hole. And I basically thought, you know what? At any moment, our entire world could be sucked into a black hole and completely destroyed. And it suddenly occurred to me that this was a force so powerful, even mum and dad couldn't keep me safe from it. In bed, I was tossing and turning, trying to get to sleep. Nothing was happening. And suddenly I remembered, huh, well, when I'm with mum and dad, what do we do? We pray. And I remember that was the first time I just reached out to the Lord in prayer. I just said, God, help me now. I'm, I'm terrified. Keep me safe. And I can remember even now so clearly just this sense of peace filling my heart and almost straight away falling asleep. And uh, that, was, that was the beginning of my, my own relationship with Jesus. Uh, sounds wonderful to have such a, a lovely, precious childhood. And so was it just a, a gradual growing in faith? Any, any key moments through teens? Uh, yes, I, I would say so. Uh, a big detail for me um, was I, I mentioned how my parents had got us together, would have this time praying, reading the Bible. Another thing they did, which was which was huge, was um, them reading to us different missionary stories. And um, my overwhelming experience of childhood was one of boredom. Hmm. School was boring. Being at home was boring. But every night we'd come and we'd listen to these adventure stories that really happened. Uh, like this guy, Hudson Taylor, he really gets on a boat for five months 
to go to the other side of the world. He arrives, there's really a civil war going on. You read about the difficulties he encounters, how he's chased by mobs, how he's beaten up, how he faces personal tragedy. Yeah, despite all of that, you hear of the peace and the joy which he encountered in the Lord. And I remember just reading this and hearing these stories and thinking, wow, these people, they've, they've clearly got something worth dying for. But so much more than that, they've clearly discovered the secret of really living as well. And as a child whose overwhelming experience was one of boredom, I remember hearing this and thinking, hey, you know what, that's what I want to do. I want to live that kind of missionary lifestyle. Yeah. But that had kind of, that had all gone on on pause. And uh, I remember I was at a camp and this woman called Sally was giving a talk. And I can't remember anything she said until she was wrapping up her message. And she just said something on the lines of, you know what, there may be people here whose parents read to their missionary stories growing up and you've, you just said, you know what, I want to live that life. I want to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. I want to be all in. And then she said, what I want you to do is I want to challenge you to start doing that now. Right now, your kids, you're 13, 14, 15, you haven't got a lot. And the truth is, the less you have, the easier it's going to be to give it all away, to give it all to Jesus mm -hmm. and to his kingdom. And I remember hearing this, and it just completely struck me because I'd never heard that challenge. I had these dreams and these aspirations to have that kind of life, to be all in like those missionaries. But I'd always kind of thought, you know what, this is something that's going to happen in the future. But Sally said, start now. And in fact, now is the easiest time. And uh, I didn't have a, a lot of money at the time. All I had was my paper round earning £10 a week. But I said, hey, you know what? I want to do it. Everything I've got saved up, I want to, I want to invest this into the kingdom. And uh, that was a real no turning back moment for me. Mm. Yeah, likewise, the missionary biographies totally stirred my fire. And I think we're, we're similarly sort of DNA of all-in adventure and... Uh, yeah, so on the doctoring front, I mean, did you always think you're going to end up as a medic? Was that just a stepping stone to to, to being able to be used in mission work? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Simon. Um, actually, I, in many ways, I'm not really your natural doctor. I don't think I'm super well cut out for it uh, as a profession. Um, but my my focus was very much on the missionary work. And I thought, what can I do to help set me up for that? Hudson Taylor, he'd gotten trained as a doctor specifically to open doors on the mission fields. So I remember just kind of thinking the same. I'm not quite sure what I want to do. I've got the grace to do medicine. You know, when it helped Hudson Taylor on the mission field, perhaps it could, could do the same for me. So count me in, I'm going to go for it. And now, it, what does it look like? So you're doing two days a week, is it? That's right. I do two days a week, and uh, I've got this great setup at my hospital where I can work 3 p.m. to midnight, which I'm an evening person, so that's uh, that's kind <laughs> of ideal. And um, what I really love about it is it means I can still be around uh, five days a week for the work I do with the charity, with 500K, clearly not a full day on a Monday and Tuesday, just the morning, but I, I really love how it opens opens that door. 
And uh, what I now say to people, people like, oh, wow, you know, in the emergency room, that must be intense. And I, I say, you think that's intense? I go to the emergency room to like to have a break from the ministry. <laughs> <laughs> go on. So let's go. Let's go into that. How did you get connect, connected to India initially? So I mentioned um, mum and dad had read these missionary stories to us growing up. I had this desire to be a missionary. I had a place to go and study medicine in Cardiff. And I took a year out. Uh, I took a gap year before going to university uh, to get some submission exposure. And uh, right at the start of that, I was looking for something to do with my time. And um, I meet um, an Indian guy. And uh, this guy was just giving a talk at my grandparents' church. This is just a, a tiny church just outside of Cambridge. And my grand just says to me, oh, Eddie, there's this Indian missionary guy speaking tonight. Do you want to come along? And I said, well, yeah, I've got nothing better to do. Okay. And uh, I go along and uh, I listen to this guy and he's sharing these stories of what God is doing right now in, in India. And they sounded just like the stories that mum and dad had read to me mm -hmm. growing up. Men and women leaving everything behind, putting their lives on the line for the gospel to go to communities that have never heard about Jesus. Um, and, and really living these lives of adventure, seeing great breakthroughs, seeing communities transformed. And I remember hearing these stories and thinking, you know, whoa, I thought, I thought these are all locked away in the past 150 years ago. I thought they didn't make people like these today. So when this guy said, look, does anybody want to come and visit India and see these people? I said, you know, are you kidding me? I spent my whole life wanting to learn from these people, to emulate them. You're saying I can actually meet them in the flesh, sit at mm -hmm. their feet, learn from them? So uh, a few months later, I'm 19 now. Um, we're traveling around India, and um, I just had this, this moment or a few moments where I'd be there uh, worshiping in a, a tiny little house church, and these people, as soon as yeah, we've got nothing in common whatsoever, superficially, everything is completely different, different language, culture, can barely communicate. As soon as I hear these people worshipping the Lord, I suddenly realize we are part of the same family. Mm -hmm. And my friends at school who superficially I've got everything in common with, you know, I'm actually more distant from them than I am from these people in this rural village out in, in India. And then it struck me, up until five years ago, the gospel had simply never reached this place. Hmm. 2,000 years, nothing. But then someone came, a missionary came, and now there's a church here. And I remember seeing this and just thinking, what I am witnessing here is history in the making. Hmm. A scientist could say, who cares? This is a few people in an unimportant village in the middle of nowhere. It's got zero significance. But for me, if that place has never heard the good news of Jesus, and now there is a community of people worshipping him there, that's history in the making. Hmm. And I just saw this and was like, wow, this is awesome. I wanted to be a missionary myself, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm suddenly getting a sense of, I don't think you guys need me coming to you. I've, I've got this big passion for evangelism, but here I am 
in the UK, I'm struggling to persuade even two of my friends to come along to church with me. Here you guys are making history, planting churches into unreached villages. And I was like, no, 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 no. Okay, you guys do not need me coming to you. You're already doing it. How can I be a part of what is going on here? And uh, they were a, a bit shy and a bit coy, but eventually they said, look, one of the ways you can help is through giving. Mm-hmm. Our churches are poor. Uh, we're struggling to look after the impoverished in our own communities and our own pastors, let alone sending out other people to be missionaries. I remember hearing that and thinking, what, you mean this isn't happening for money? <laughs> I actually found this really quite encouraging because I thought getting my friends into church, that is, that's difficult, but I can help with money. That is something I can easily do. Mm-hmm. I can, you know, to make money, I just have to turn up at work. I don't even have to be particularly good. And when I said, look, how much do these guys need? And they said, Ed, well, in your terms, we're talking about 60 pounds a month, $80 a month. I just thought, what? that is crazy. The thought that someone's not being sent to an unreached village for that much money, that that's mad. And I that was when I had this real shift and i thought right rather than being a missionary medic myself Mm -hmm. i'm going to be a money-making medic in the uk instead i'm still going to try and live that basic lifestyle as if i was on the front lines myself but i'm going to donate all the difference to supporting indigenous workers instead and rather than being just one missionary myself i'm going to support 20 30 even 40 of these local workers instead Mm, beautiful. So you went back to England and you, you trained up. I, mean, I, I remember you talking about, you know, wearing these shoes that end up leaking. You know, tell us about what it looked like for you to <laughs> make radical decisions in your own life. Yeah. Um, well, I've always been quite a, an all or nothing uh, person, for better, for worse. And uh, I already kind of had a passion about living simply and generously, kind of going back to this story with Sally, age 14, that I mentioned earlier. But the real difference for me in going to India was suddenly I had, before it was just about like obedience, Mm -hmm. like giving in a radical obedience to Jesus. Now it was seeing, now I can really see the difference that this money can make, the impact it can have. And I remember just thinking, if I can save even 15 pounds, like, what what's 15 pounds next to nothing that's a quarter of someone's income for a month uh, in india so i just remember thinking right i need to live as basically as possible as simply as possible so i find the cheapest halls of residence to live in in cardiff you know the ones with like all the the damp on the walls um <laughs> i got my food budget down as low as possible i remember my first semester I even managed to get it down to, I think, to £8.50 a week. Um, people say, how on earth did you do this? Well, they don't sell it anymore. But at the time, there was something called Tesco Value Jelly, Tesco Value Jello. <laughs> <laughs> and essentially, I wouldn't, turn, I wouldn't add the boiling water and turn it into jelly. I would just eat it like a chocolate bar out of this plastic container. That would cost three pence. And it was 360 calories. So I, apart from drinking cooking oil, this was the most calorie efficient thing that you could consume. It was 120 <laughs> calories per penny. You mentioned the clothes. Um, I was like, well, you know, I've got these clothes. Why buy new ones? These are great. 
that was fine for like my first year or so at uni. But by second year, things are starting to wear through, fall apart. Uh, these shoes that you mentioned, they started to separate at the front. I um, I didn't know about shoe glue at the time, so I instead got man's best friend. I got some duct tape and just wrapped it round and round these shoes. Uh, it, it held it together. It secured it. Um, only problem was it wasn't very waterproof. And I was living in Wales where it rains a lot. I every day so i just had a a permanently uh wet left foot for three months or so but by the grace of god didn't succumb to some kind of tropical illness can i say that just sounds a bit extreme a bit sort of over the top have you reached a sort of more normal (laughs) moderated version of that that sort of makes sense in the western world i'd say that because i remember coming back from uh, i was in central african republic for a bit and i had this profound moment when uh, well, my pastor's brother died in his arms because he didn't have three pounds, mm. three pounds, wow. uh, so four dollars, whatever, oh, for the medicine across the counter. And I came back to England oh. and I was like, that's three pounds for life. And I, so for example, I wouldn't, I couldn't have a beer for a year. I just, I just couldn't uh, sort of get my head around how that, that was a life. Uh, and yet in mm. the Western world, you can't live that way. So, so mm. have you worked that out, that tension in your head? That's a, that's really great question Simon and uh, to be honest it's still something that I wrestle with I think it's something everyone kind of needs to work out it's a tension that is just so so tough where I've landed is I'm happy to spend some money having a drink with someone or having a, a meal out with someone uh, I very much see that as um, investing in that person uh, I'm happy to go away somewhere in the UK if it's a, a stag do or a weekend away with friends, um, I'm happy to spend money on that because, again, I want to invest in those friendships and those people. I haven't been or haven't I haven't paid for myself a foreign holiday in in years. I think over ten years mm-hmm. um, because I just think I don't know if I can justify this expense. There is value in holidays. I don't see why I need to go uh, abroad uh, to do this. Um, still try and and uh, find a, a, cheap, a house with cheap rent to live in. Um, I don't own a house. I don't own a car. Um, I don't really have any savings. At this stage, I felt God say to me, look, money's coming in. People in India, people on the other side of the world need this far more than you do. Um, Even without these savings, you are still far more financially secure than most of your brothers and sisters. Um, So that's kind of the, the, I'd say it's kind of, uneasy tension that I'm in. I'm, sure. <laughs> my clothes are much better than they used to be. They're still kind of charity shop clothes rather than new clothes. Um, but I think that's a, it's, it's a really, really uh, difficult one and mm. uh, something to keep, keep struggling and wrestling with. Yeah. Well, I love it. It's, it. I think of that thing in Schindler's List, isn't it? At the end of the film, do you remember that way? He's, he, he, he's got these, um, these medals or whatever that he takes off his, his, his shirt and he said, I could, if I'd sold these, I could have saved two more yeah. lives and it's that in extremis what's it look like to be to be absolutely all in it's very very challenging mm. isn't it yeah i uh, think like, something i find very very grounding is um one john three mm-hmm. where john says this is how we know what love is jesus christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters and i just think by living simply and cheaply, we are still so far away from actually laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 
but that's what we're commanded to do. Mm. And in fact, we're not just commanded to do that. It seems to be right at the very core of our faith. Jesus Christ did this to us. And now it's, now it's our turn to do it for the rest of the world. Yeah. Hi, folks. Most of you know this podcast comes out under the auspices of Great Lakes Outreach, which works in Burundi, according to IMF figures recently, still the hungriest and poorest country in the world. Now, we do lots of beautiful things. I love the story recently of a leader who resisted going into prostitution and had a pair of scissors, did some hairdressing, could hardly make ends meet, but with a £7 loan, that's like eight and a half dollars, she was able to buy a few hair products which enabled her to just get a higher margin on her hairdressing and she has now paid back that loan. She managed to buy a pig and more recently on the back of paying back the loan, we've given her a bigger loan and she's rented premises as a proper hair salon. I love that. Seven pounds stopped her going to prostitution. The whole community now honours her as a woman of stature for not having gone down that path. Seven pounds, eight and a half dollars, literal game changer. We got lots of those stories. If you wanted to support our work out there, if you're loving the podcast, as many of you are, then you could do just give whatever a month to be beautiful. That's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. Greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. Any sum would be beautiful. Anyway, let's get back to the podcast. So you set up 500K, the organization. Um, tell us about that. What, what, what does it mean? So I mentioned I came back from India. And uh, to begin with, I never had any sense that God would be uh, calling me to launch an organization. It was very much just how can, how can I give? What can I do? But God had his own plans. And uh, little by little, um, things began to coalesce. Other people started giving. And uh, we just we kind of started praying. This could be more than just ad hoc supporting a few church planters here and there. Something in particular that struck me was was going to India a second time, visiting a training center there, and realizing that most of the people in this training center were from the newly planted churches in the previously unreached villages. And they were being trained to go and repeat that process to go into another village. And I remember seeing that and that really, really challenged me thinking, wow, if you can not just go into a place and plant a church, but raise up new leaders and those new leaders can go and plant more churches and raise up more people, you can multiply, you can scale, you can be unstoppable. Hmm. And so that really, that really got me thinking. Uh, and, and the others who were with me at the time, we were thinking and we were praying. And it's our conviction that there's really, there's no treasure in this world that compares to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Mm -hmm. All kinds of benefits, all kinds of good things, all kinds of privileges, like uh, education, your wealth, your accomplishments, your family, who you are, what you've done, who you know, where you were born, all these things are great. But really, essentially, I believe, all those details are, are irrelevant compared to the one question, the one privilege worth talking about. And that is, have you had the chance to know Jesus and to hear his gospel? Because essentially everything else is irrelevant. That's the only detail worth talking about. And we were reflecting on this and we basically started, we asked the question, the what would it take question? What would it take for every person in India to have a chance to hear the good news of Jesus? What would it take for every person in India to have access to the gospel? 
And I'm a big believer in the local church. I really believe that for someone to have a chance to meet with Jesus, there has to be a church within their community that can share Jesus with them. Mm-hmm. So we started doing some some research at the time. We were consulting Professor Google. And <laughs> what we learned was that of the 600,000 villages in India, as many as 500,000, half a million, have got no church no Christian presence, completely unreached. And we learned that and we just said, well, well then, that's the need. That's what it would take for every person in India to have access to the gospel. You'd have to have 500,000 churches, a church in every village, a gospel witness in every community. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where the name 500K comes from. And uh, we say that, we don't say that to kind of say, yeah, this is our mission is to plant all of those churches. Thanks, Peter God. We're just the smallest, smallest, tiniest part of what he is doing through his spirit in India to meet that need. But we don't want to forget that need. And we want to keep bringing it before us and to keep working our hardest, believing our hardest, praying our hardest until that vision has come to pass. There's 500,000 churches, a church in every village, a gospel witness in every community. And there's an India where every person has a chance to hear the good news of Jesus. Hmm. And... I think most people be aware, but maybe not. The context is increasing persecution, isn't it? Correct. So tell us about some of the people that you work with and the beauty of their faith in the, in the furnace of fire. Hmm. Well, let me, let me tell you, um, I, I was in India uh, just a couple of months ago and I was in the Himalayas, a beautiful place, very incredibly spiritual place. You could just feel the spiritual realities there. Mm-hmm. And... I was talking to one of these church planters and he'd only been there doing ministry uh, about six months. And it was very exciting hearing him share, you know, we've got 20 people coming for prayer already, only in in six months. And essentially I I asked him this question, what's it like people, is is there pushback, is there opposition? And he was like, oh yeah, it's huge. And I was like, you know, give me, give me the details. And he was saying, well, you know, six months in, some of his believers start coming to him and they say, look, other people in the village have told us to come and tell you that if you keep coming here, they're going to get you. They're going to attack you. They may even kill you. He then told me of one time how he was driving, he was on his motorbike coming into the village and how people get into new villages in India. It's very often relational. They often have some kind of connection to that village. So this village is his his wife's native place. His wife was born there. So he's driving in on the motorbike and he sees these six guys on the road in front of him and they're kind of blocking the road. And he, he sees them and he thinks, I, I know why they're there. They're waiting for me. This is going to be it. I'm in serious trouble. He says he slowed down because they're blocking the road. Fortunately, that time he had his wife on the back of the bike mm-hmm. and because it's her native place they recognize her they see his wife there and they decide not to go for him because she's there so they disperse but he's like every time i'm going in i've got this fear he's the only christian leader in that area maybe mm. there are a few like lower down the valley he's the only one in that place he started this ministry he knows he's being targeted and uh, i said well well how, how about now and because um, I'm kind of, my, my expectation is he's still terrified. Mm. And presumably he's like no longer doing ministry there because his life's in danger. And I could see like, in terms of like communication, the ball wasn't quite getting over the net. We were kind of almost talking past each other. 
And suddenly he was like, oh, oh, I see what you mean. Oh, of course, like, I'm still terrified. Like, every time I go there by myself without my wife by me, like, I'm afraid they're going to get me. But, um, you know, that doesn't, like, make me think twice about going there. You know, of course it doesn't. That doesn't deter me. For me, it would be an absolute joy to die for Christ. Like, I don't see that as a negative. I see that as a positive. And I was sitting there hearing this story and just realizing, wow, what you're sharing to me here is just so outside of my frame of reference. Yeah. But that is the, that is the power of, of God's spirit to, yeah, yeah. to raise up his church, particularly in those areas of persecution. It's very humbling for us, isn't it, in the Cosseted West. I, I, I came up from Burundi just last week and uh, with our Muslim evangelism guys. And, and mm. you know, those guys, uh, I mean, when I take people out into the streets in England or in, in Wales, we met you in Wales, um, you know, people are really fearful of sharing their faith. And I said, look, look, look if you're polite and, and, you know, got any sort of social skills and read the vibe, mm. the, the worst thing that you will ever get is uh, no thanks, mm. no thanks. And these yeah. guys in Burundi, they're saying to me, uh, Simon, when we're packing away our things, having reached out in the Muslim community and they are stoning us, it'd be really helpful uh, to have a vehicle to make a faster getaway. You know, that, <laughs> that, it's just a different league, isn't it? Oh dear. So uh, I'm interested in, I mean, the, the parts of um, India that are very much harder than others and less receptive, but are you, are, have you mm -hmm. seen through your guys a uh, sort of major outpouring of the spirit in terms of uh, the miraculous? Absolutely, yeah. To share one story, uh, and this is again from... A couple of months ago when I was in India, uh, my favorite thing when I'm there is just to go to some of these these churches out in the middle of nowhere mm -hmm. and just to say to people, um, can you just share with me your stories? Can you um, particularly I want to hear about how Jesus has changed your life. And uh, this woman she's wearing this beautiful orange sari, this beautiful orange dress. She stands up and she's sharing her testimony and tears are just streaming down her face. It was just so much uh, passion there. She, she starts sharing a story and she says, look, uh, I think at about the age of 16, I got married, it was an arranged marriage and uh, things were okay. But then my husband, he starts drinking. He then stops working. So all the money he does have is going on the alcohol. There's no money coming, no more money coming in because he doesn't have a job. Unfortunately, he starts to get violent, as people often do when they're drinking to excess. So he would beat me up. Then one day, there's no money around, we're struggling. He said to me and my children, you need to go move back in with your parents. And he said, uh, I can leave you. I can never leave the alcohol. Hmm. And uh, I could see how this lady was so distraught. She was saying at that time, she was just covered. Um, she, had, she had itching from like top of her head to the bottom of her feet, head to toe, had itching all over her body. She was being tortured by nightmares. She said she had a huge sense of alienation from people. She would go into a room, there'd be people there, she just didn't feel like she could be around them. All of this was going on. Anyway, one of our missionaries, church planters, goes into that community. This lady hears the gospel. She's prayed for. She gives her life to Christ. She says, straight away, all of that itching stopped. Mm -hmm. The nightmares stopped. Sense of alienation from people stopped. In her words, she'd just been that God had delivered her. She then goes to her husband and she says, Look, I want you to come to this meeting and hear about this Jesus. And he says, mm -mm, No way, not interested. She's 
disappointed. She's crushed. She goes back to this missionary, this Indian missionary, and she, and, the, and and the missionary says, "Look, don't be disappointed. We're Christians, and when things don't go the way we're hoping them to, we pray." So they stop praying and praying and praying. Some months pass. She she goes back. She speaks to her husband again. She asks him to come to this church meeting. He says, "Okay." She told me how that very night he gave his life to Christ, and he's not touched a drop of alcohol again since. Beautiful. Just completely delivered. She and her children have moved back in. The family's been reconciled. He's repented of his old way of doing things. There's no more domestic abuse. Uh, I could just see how she was there, and she was just weeping, sharing her story because her entire life has been turned around mm. by meeting with Jesus and what He's done. Love it. Any more you want to share? I was speaking to a woman at one of these church plants, and she shared her testimony, and she was saying how she had been bedridden for seven years. So her children are coming. They're washing her on the bed. They're bringing her bedpan. Sometimes I pick her up, put her in the chair. That was her life, if you could call it life, for seven years. And then ten years ago, this evangelist—nothing to do with us. This evangelist comes walking through the village, and he's looking for people to pray for, people to minister to. Someone tells him about this woman. So he goes and meets her, starts sharing the gospel with her over a period of six months, meeting with her, praying, sharing from the word. During those six months, first of all, she starts walking, hobbling around on a stick. By the end of those six months, she's completely recovered, complete healing. And she's got this huge grin on her face, like when I saw her. So this woman had been healed, but that all happened 10 years ago. And this evangelist, he's an itinerant evangelist. It's in his nature to move on and to minister to other places. So he goes. And that was a story. Then I was here and I was talking to some of these uh, church planters in that area as well. And one of the church planters, he said, well, his leader told him to minister somewhere in these villages, but forgot to direct him where exactly to go. So he told me he started prayer walking and uh, he's walking from village to village praying. And he said there was one particular village where God gave him a sense of peace. So he goes into this village and his strategy is not one I would recommend. This is India. There is a lot of persecution, but he just buys a mic and a little PA system. He just starts preaching the gospel on the street. <laughs> so that, that is a recipe for getting beaten up. But there he is. He's preaching the gospel on the street. And who walks past? It's this very same woman who had been healed from seven years being bedridden. 10 years prior. And she walks past and she says, are you preaching the gospel? And he says, yes, I am. She says, I have been praying for 10 years that God would bring someone else to this village to continue what that man started. Please, would you stay here and minister to this village? And this church planter, this missionary, he was telling me how this woman, she was like the person of peace through whom he was able to reach this village, reach that community. She opens up her networks to him. The first person um, she tells him about, he starts ministering to, is her neighbour. And her neighbour is um, a young woman. And her parents had been using her as a fortune teller. So a spirit would come upon her and people would come to her and she would tell their futures. And uh, the family thought this was great. They got respect and status in the community. Um, they were given money as well. Things were going great, uh, right until they weren't going so great. This um, lady 
started manifesting these strange behaviors. She could be in the field working with someone and suddenly like dissociate and just not respond to anything they're saying. Or she would then scream and collapse, hit the deck. They were there, they were telling me how at home she would sometimes grab a knife, she would threaten to cut herself or hurt people in the family. They'd hold, hold her down, take this knife off her. Another time they're out in the village and she tries to throw herself in a well, they have to restrain her. And uh, this was the first person whom the missionary starts ministering to. He goes to her and he says, look, this spiritual force that you've been using to tell the, these fortunes, this isn't God. This isn't a good power. This is something you have to repent of. This is something you need to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. You can be forgiven. And this woman, she does just that. She gives her life to Christ. She's played, prayed for. She's delivered from this, uh, this spirit. But what was really exciting was then seeing this woman and her testimony in the village. Now, you know, when I was there, several families were coming for prayer and worship. This woman who had been healed of the, the, the weakness and she was in bed for seven years, that was a great story, but that had happened 10 years ago in the past. But this young woman who's been cured from this spirit, that is fresh. And people are saying, hey, this is the girl who previously was causing all this trouble, all this disruption, all this chaos. Now she's telling us about a God who loves us, a God who's forgiven her. People are interested. They hear that story and they're thinking, God's done that for her. What can God do for me? And that is what is powering so much of the, the growth of the churches in these villages. Wonderful. Um, in terms of numbers and church growth, can you talk into that at all? Well, I think for me, getting to work in India is, is a, a very exciting place because there's just more and more people stepping up saying, look, I want to go. I want to be sent. This message has come and saved me. I want to take it back to my village, my tribe, my state. I want them to hear as well. And people are just hungry. People are hungry to hear of a God who loves them. That is just, it's kind of a bit twee here in the UK. It's like a crazy revolutionary idea in India. And as a result, churches are just growing like anything. So we launched 500K back in late 2014, so about eight and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. Like then we were supporting 30 church planters. Now it's more like 730 church planters. Right. Some of those have, have come off the books as well and no longer being financially supported. Uh, altogether, these people uh, have reached over 4,700 villages. Mm -hmm. so kind of, it's kind of like, come on, we're getting close to that 5,000, to that 1% barrier. We're getting there. And uh, there's about 43,000 people who are attending those those meetings who are hearing the gospel on uh, on a regular basis. Just wonderful. I mean, that just sounds absolutely brilliant. I know there are major ups and downs when you're when you're all in. So can you share some of the mm -hmm. difficulties you've had and how you, what's got you through? For me, perhaps one of the, the biggest difficulties, like relationships, so key to what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, um, um, so we we work through. Bible colleges in India, each of these Bible colleges is, is training people and they then go out and become a part of a church planting network associated with that Bible college. And uh, we're working with eight or so of these at the moment. What was really, really tough was having to say um, goodbye to one of those mm -hmm. groups. And, and I was relationally very, very close with them and uh, with their leader uh, as well. But uh, it, it inspired that they were doing amazing work and had reached a lot of people for the gospel. But we also found that uh, there had been dishonesty and mm. uh, um, and funds had gone missing. Um, 
a portion of the money that we'd given for the church planters simply had never had never made it to them and that had been um covered up and 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 lied about and and we tried to we tried to work through that and um we, we weren't able to and we we had to had to uh, break off and uh, that was very very tough to to lose that relationship to try and understand it and to make sense of it when this is a Christian brother who's in many ways been a, a mentor in many ways one of the best Christian people I've ever met mm. how can that how can those two things go on how can someone be this inspirational Christian and that also you know f- for, for what happened with that money to happen that was very hard to understand and and very hard also to have to say goodbye to some of our our church planters because you know, we're supporting them through through that network um so that that was really tough mm. um and yeah, I think that's one of the hardest things about leadership. I'd say is 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 conflict, and and what to do uh, when when things go wrong and when relationships don't work out. Yeah. No, I remember a sucker blow of uh, a friend of mine forging my signature and uh, mm. nicking fifteen thousand dollars from designated you know designated funding for a specific outreach, and it was devastating. And it took two years for that particular organisation to sort of rebuild any sort of trust. And yeah, and, uh, but it's re- you know it's redeemed and um, back on the back on the road and seeing lots of people come to faith. So it, we're we're in it for the long haul. It's not it's not short term stuff, is it? Amen. Hey folks, I'm loving hearing the impact of the podcast, all the feedback and how people are being encouraged and stirred in their faith. So listen, you are our best advocates and recruiters in a sense. So just wondering, can you think of three people that you could forward this podcast to? Can you? Three people and we'll spread the network and bombarding people with joy and hope and encouragement. Go on, go for it. That'll be a real help to me. All right, let's get back to the podcast. So Ed, um, I know you've got gazillions of really inspiring stories. Go on, just just share share a few of your best. Hmm. Yeah, I'd like to share a story of just uh, one of them to give you a, a picture of what just one of them's doing. This is a guy, um, call him Amrit. He actually was from south of India, but he felt God calling him to go uh, right into to North India, to uh, to near the border with uh, Pakistan, mm-hmm. to outreach there. So there he is, and uh, it's very uh, tribal area. And um, where that place is, it's particularly dangerous to to share uh, the gospel mm-hmm. uh, due to the the majority faith there. And what they did was they waited. Amrit and his colleague they waited until Christmas, and at Christmas time they then invite all the uh, local dignitaries. So that's like the train ticket inspector and the local policeman and the guy who runs the post office and all the local chiefs of the tribes, and they all come. And they attend this party and they say, look, we're Christians and at Christmas we like to, to celebrate. And we do two things. We give people presents. And so they, they give everyone there a Bible wrapped up in some paper. And they say, here's your Christmas present. And they say, the second thing we do is we like to eat cake. And so here's your slice of cake. They give everyone a, a slice of cake. And uh, a very simple message, Amrit said, I want you to remember that Life is bitter, but right now this cake you're eating is, is sweet. I, I want you to remember that when, when like the next time life is bitter, Jesus can be the sweet. Mm-hmm. Very, very simple message. Anyway, all the invitees go home, and one of these chiefs, he goes and uh, takes his wrapped up Bible and he puts it on the top shelf of his room. He forgets all about it. Then one night, he starts getting this, this terrible pain in his tummy. 
And so he calls his people together and he says, guys, I'm in agony. You've got to take me to the hospital right now. And they say, boss, you know the rules. You know we're living pretty much in a war zone here. There's a curfew. No cars on the road after 9 p.m. How are we going to get you to the hospital? You're going to have to wait until the morning. So there he is. He's lying on the floor of his room and he's clutching his tummy. He's in so much pain. And from the floor of his room, he looks up and he sees this Bible, which Amra had given him. And he remembers what Amra had said. When life is bitter, Jesus can be the sweet. So he gets up, he picks up that Bible and he puts it on his tummy and he holds it to him. And he says, Jesus, I don't know if you are God. I don't know if this book is the word of God, but if you are, help me now. Hmm. If you are, meet with me now. And he clutches his Bible to his tummy and he peacefully falls asleep. Morning comes and all of his people rush into his house. They say, boss, morning's here. Curfew's over. Let's get you to the hospital. He says, I don't have to go to the hospital any longer. He gets two boys and he sends them to go running over to Amrit's village. He says, you know, bring Amrit here. So Amrit arrives and he explains, he says what happened. Last night I was in so much pain, but I remembered what you said. I prayed, I put the Bible on my stomach. Pain went away. And he said, Amrit, I want you to, to move in with me. Come live in my home. Don't tell anyone why you're here. It's, it's too dangerous. But I want you to move in. I'm going to tell everyone you're here to teach my children English. And you will. But I want you to start teaching me all about this God. Teaching me all about this Jesus. Mm. And when the time's right, when it's safe, I'm going to bring other people here to hear this message as well. And uh, that was the, the amazing story of the church in, uh, in that place. Brilliant. Wonderful. Listen, um, you know, for us listening, we're, we're, most of us are in England, America, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, you know, it's that sort of crowd as well as across Europe. But, you know, very different Western contexts. We're not suffering mm. massively for our faith. We're not living in extreme poverty. But, but what would your message to Christians in the West wanting to live a radical discipleship what, 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 for Jesus? What, what would your message be to us? I think we can so easily just lose a sense of wonder of the gospel, of just how an astonishing a message this is. Um, I was on the trains in India once, and that's just my favorite thing to do is just open the door of these trains and just watch the world go by. So here I am, and I'm praying, and a young Indian guy starts talking to me. And I was thinking, oh, I just want to have some downtime, some time of prayer. But I felt God saying to me, look, Ed, you need to share the gospel with this guy. So I start talking to him and I say, hey, do you, do you believe in God? And he says, well, yeah, of course I do. And that is a very common response. And even for this guy who's a student, he's an educated guy from the cities, everyone believes in God. And then I said to him, what do you think God is like? And he said, well, that, that is a good question. And I find myself wondering the same, you know, look at all this suffering around us. Look at these poor people at the side of the railways. We'd just seen a, a boy on the train being beaten by the ticket inspector. Mm. He really couldn't understand how there could be a God who loves us. That's just so completely foreign. So in a few minutes, I was able to share the gospel with this man. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget this. He was looking at me and he was just like dumbstruck, <laughs> completely silent. And then after several seconds, he just blinks and says, wow. Mm. And then there's a, another 
stunned silence. And then it's like he does a, a double take and he blinks again. And again, he says, wow. And then there are a few more seconds of silence and then another blink and then another, wow. And this just kept on happening. We just so easily forget just how astonishing our gospel is of the message of the God who loves us and who died to save us. Wonderful. Um, my message would be to, to, to go, just to go all in. We live in a world which is all about consumerism. It's about getting stuff. It's about consuming experiences. It's about how can I get the best life for myself and that can kind of seep in and just start to infect our brains and that mentality can take over we need to just push back against that and say we follow a god who gave his own life for us mm. that though he was rich yet for our sakes he became poor that we through his poverty might become rich mm. and our response is to go all in for that and just to remember the all-surpassing value of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And that is our gospel. Someone really did. The Son of God really did love us enough and he really did die for us. And if we can just see that value and keep bringing that before our eyes every day, just trying to just all these distractions, just life and careers and experiences and what are you doing and how you accomplish can we just just try and get rid of that mm -hmm. commit ourselves to consecrating ourselves to jesus of living a life of undivided devotion to him being committed to prayer being committed to his word being committed to fellowship yeah that's the key mm -hmm. and the more we can recognize his value the more that will enable us to be all in in our pursuit of him and his kingdom. Yeah. Challenge for us in the West, unless we're regularly exposed to cross-cultural mission and the cost of it is that we've got such a low bar of what is considered reasonable mm. discipleship, isn't it? And that's why mm. I love it. I get four times a year to go back to Burundi to be with guys mm. who are willing to die for their faith, who are suffering, who've mm. sacrificed incredibly lucrative wow. career opportunities to, to be all in. And that sort of raises back up the bar for me when I'm tempted to tone it down. Listen, I, it blows my mind when I think that £60 or $75, whatever, such a sum can literally launch someone who is all in into church planting so as we mm. close you know i would love that part of the outworking of this podcast it's always been the case that is that whoever's showcasing their their, their story can can see major ministry benefits uh, how can people get involved in in what's doing what god's doing in india through 500k Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Simon. So uh, we've a, a big dream for this year is to send out 400 more church planters. That's the dream. So there's a significant uh, financial requirement. Each of these people needs only 60 pounds or 80 US dollars a month to get out into action. And what we say to people is you can pray and you can provide, you can give, you can do both of that through the website, mm. the like T-H-E 500K, that's 500K.com. And there you can sign up to the newsletter if you'd like to be praying. If you want to jump in and start giving, again, you can do that on the website, just the 500K.com. Wonderful. Oh, it's been so good, Ed. I feel encouraged, challenged, uh, inspired to go deeper, to be more in. Um, so bless you so much. Thanks for your time, buddy. 
Thank you. It's been a joy, Simon. Excellent. Well, listen, guys, if you've been inspired, it'd be great if you give us a top quality review on Spotify, iTunes. Do get in touch with me, simongilbert.com. Uh, I want to thank Adam Thomas Steer for the editing, Mike Sandiman for the mixing. Next week, we've got another fantastic guest uh, for another great story from a completely different context. So, look forward to seeing you again there. Uh, in the meantime, have a good week and toodaloo.